0: Who are the Mountain Meisters?
1: Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus.
2: Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it.
1: You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have.
0: Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts,
1: Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben. Hey, Russell's here. Today on the show, we have Sylvan Ellifson. Sylvan was born and raised in Vail, Colorado. After many awards, including being named an All American at Bates College, Sylvan pursued Nordic skiing professionally. Sylvan has placed in numerous podiums on the Super Tour, raced in 23 World Cups, and won the U.S. National Cross Country Championships this past year. He's now switching gears and pursuing a more entrepreneurial opportunity and helping start up a craft distillery in Vail, Colorado called Tenth Mountain Whiskey and Spirit Company. So, Sylvan, it's pretty natural how people get started with alpine skiing. You know, they like to go fast. It's social. But I really don't understand how somebody could not only get introduced, but also enjoy Nordic skiing. So (laughs) tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got introduced to the sport.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny you say that because, you know, growing up in Vale, a pretty alpine heavy area, people always kinda wonder, you know, how'd you get into Nordic skiing? I mean the answer's pretty simple, is when you got some some peer pressure and some peer influence behind it, it kinda helps. So when I was uh when I was sixteen I had a couple good buddies that were uh starting up Nordic skiing and you know, I kinda I put my put my toe in, kinda see what it was like and I loved alpine racing at that point in my life, and I didn't really want to give that up, but as soon as my Nordic skiing results started taking over my uh, alpine results, it was kind of, it was an easy decision from there.
2: At what age did you actually get started? Was this in high school then?
1: Yeah, it was early high school, my sophomore year in high school, so I was 15.
2: When I think about being a 15-year-old and starting a sport that I would eventually be a professional athlete, and it just... I wouldn't even think that would be possible. I feel like most of these kids are on their Nordic skis when they're like three years old. Mm -hmm. Did you uh, feel a little disadvantaged back then?
1: Yeah, I think a little bit. I mean, a lot of my friends that had been on their skis for, you know, five to 10 years before that had definitely, I felt like had an advantage, but I think for me, it was just my, my competitive spirit from, you know, it kind of translated over from soccer to alpine skiing to even to like school, I just I've always been really competitive and just like having a good time and if your friends are involved it definitely helps.
0: See, let's talk a little bit about the competitions because I'm not really too familiar. I know that there are different kinds of Nordic events and whether it's through my knowledge of watching the Olympics, I know there's the cross country part and then there's the ski jumping part, and then there's the combined event where you do both of those. How did that come about? (laughs) Uh,
1: I'm actually not entirely sure, I think. I have a lot of friends on the U.S. Nordic combined team, but, you know, it's something that they've all done since they were little kids, too, and I think it might just have to do where you grow up. You know, if you grow up with a ski jump around, you know, whether you're in Steamboat or Lake Placid, that's just another opportunity to get into a Nordic sport that has a different aspect to it.
0: I mean, this isn't just a ski jump. This is like, what... 600 foot ski jump and to do that combined with the cross-country part just seems so funny but anyway so you do strictly the cross-country part of it and how long are the races normally
1: yeah correct they're classic and skate races and those range from one and a half k sprints to usually on like the professional circuit up to 50 kilometer uh, races
2: just so the listeners know the classic is actually in tracks that are kind of pre-grooved is that right correct yeah okay and you have to stay in the grooves and there are also different skis that you use for the classic compared to the skate yep what's your specialty
1: i guess i'm what you would call uh an all-arounder so i do classic and skate skiing uh i think everyone pretty much focuses on classic and skate skiing no one really specializes in either or but there are specialists in sprinting and longer distance, but I do all classic skate, short distance
0: and long distance. And you always see the people like exchanging skis mid races. Why are they doing that?
1: <laughs> yeah, those are, uh, those are races called pursuit races, um, or skiathlons. And for men, usually on the professional circuit, they usually do 15 kilometers, uh, in the traditional classical, um, and then 15 kilometers in skate.
2: When you're preparing for these, you have the classical and the skate, are they different training aspects or is it pretty similar to what you're doing and what are you actually doing?
1: I love classic skiing. I think a lot of my skate skiing is better, but classic skiing is more, it's more of just like a natural movement to me. me. You know, it's like a, a walking basically with like just big arm movements. And so when you're going down the track, you're, you're really trying to, like, push off on the bottom of your foot because you have this uh, sticky wax on the bottom of your feet or, or fish scales, something that's going to help propel you forward. I really do enjoy classic skiing a lot more just because it's such a, like, natural – Great. I think it's just a good-looking kind of movement through the woods.
0: Very graceful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we saw some videos of you doing your training this past season. I think it was this past season. And holy crap, what's a typical day of training like for you when you're gearing up for the season?
1: (laughs) A brunt of my training happens during the summer. You know, I'll be up at 6 o'clock in the morning making sure I get some good food in. Training usually from either... Seven thirty to eight or seven thirty to nine thirty or seven thirty to ten just depending on the day it's it's usually pretty long hours in the morning and then after that you're just making sure that you're getting in some good recovery food and then usually I head home and take a nap for a little bit and then try and get some work done in the afternoon, you know whether it's calling sponsors or doing you know setting up an event to help raise money or kind of making sure you're on on top of the eight ball and then in the afternoon it's uh another workout session so usually I like to mix it up and do some running or biking or something in the afternoon um, outside of you know some roller skiing in the morning or something like that and then after that it's back home and eating dinner and taking care of whatever else needs to be done
0: Yeah. So, to our listeners, you heard Sylvan say roller skiing, and those are basically little planks with two wheels on either end, right, or one wheel, I guess, on each end. Correct. Yep. And does that simulate Nordic skiing? Does that feel like Nordic skiing?
1: Yeah, it totally does. It. It's a little bit different just because of how I don't know the wheels react to the pavement versus how you know snow would release off of a ski. But it's all it's a movement that you know if you repeat a lot you know, it'll help you mm-hmm. to kind of get that, that movement, uh, kind of ingrained in your brain for
2: the winter season. So you're mostly doing these on roads Are are people ever kind of stopping and looking at you weird or are they pretty comfortable <laughs> with this, uh, interesting roller skate setup?
1: Yeah, they're always kind of looking at it. We, <laughs> people always kind of, I mean, if people are interested, you know, you see some, some people going down the road skiing with like these long poles and short little skis and, And we're always, like, kind of wearing these funny little outfits, too. (laughs) People are always kind of stopping, going, you know, where where, where do you get those? And our answer is, you don't do it. (laughs) No, but we, I mean, you can buy them online, and we usually let people know where they can get them.
0: (laughs) We had a polar explorer come on the show who did some training where he would drag tires, and he was dragging tires through the middle of Chicago (laughs) and was definitely getting some weird looks there. So that was pretty funny.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So into your uh, actual Nordic career, when does all this training start? Is it like in the fall? I saw you doing some, some simulating cross country skiing on some green grass. So it's definitely not winter.
1: (laughs) Uh, So we do, uh, we basically, my season goes from May 1st to, uh, march thirty first wow so we have one month basically a- April um, must be
0: awesome
1: <laughs> every Nordic skier loves their april that's for sure you know things kind of just start ramping up in may, and that's just a lot of you know base training um a lot of volume just kind of getting a lot of those hours underneath you, so when you get to the the late summer and fall you're you know your body's ready to handle whatever intensity you're about to throw at it so that you can kind of really prepare it for the entire winter season.
0: So then we get to the winter season and now it's time to take all this training to the snow. I'm pretty confident in saying that there's a strong relationship with the training that you do and the performance and competition. And you did have this fantastic 2011-2012 season. Was that strictly as a result of like increased physical training or did something kind of just click for you?
1: Yeah, I, I think a couple of things changed that year. And up until that point, my, my results had, had gotten better and better, but, uh, it was, um, a couple of things changed. We brought in a new coach, um, Eric Pepper to ski and snowboard club Vale, And we, we worked together pretty closely and and the coach I had before Dan Wyland, it was, we had it. I mean, we had a great program. Um, I'd worked with him since I was in high school and um, you know, sometimes it's just good to, you know, restart the system and kind of do some new things. And Eric just had a lot of new ideas and he was able to come out with me every single day training. And I think that was really important and we boosted up my hours a lot uh, training wise and, that change was kind of, you know, I think it was just something, you know, whether it was the actual training or just the psychology of it, I think it was just a good, good switch for me. So I think that had a quite a big part in my, uh, my 2011, 2012
2: season. Yeah. So then you're racing pretty much every week. And I had read somewhere that you were traveling anywhere between 300 and 2000 miles. Does this excitement overshadow your exhaustion?
1: Yeah, I think so. When you're going week to week, and also it helps when, you know, when you're getting some decent results and the more good results you're getting, the closer you're getting to, you know, either World Cup starts or <laughs> or making money. <laughs> it is exciting, you know, to go just from one weekend to another. And usually, you know, the U.S. is so large, so, you know, you can either be driving 14 hours up to West Yellowstone, Montana, and then hopping on a plane there to... head somewhere else or uh you know you're driving 30 minutes down the road
2: what do the actual races look like i saw the all these different achievements you've had but i've never really heard of them or i don't really know the levels What does the progression of the race season look like
1: yeah we usually we start our race series in the west we consistently have snow during the early season like late november early december so we'll always start up in like West Yellowstone, Montana, go to Bozeman. And then a lot of people go up to Canada to join the Noram circuit up there for the Canadian skiers. And then our U.S. Nationals is always probably everyone's fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth races of the year about.
0: And then you've had a World Cup circuit, which is, that, I mean, that's like the cream of the crop, right? That's all the best Nordic skiers in the world. Were you pretty nervous going into that?
1: Oh, terrified. I had my first World Cup starts. I remember uh, uh, my first distance World Cup was in Russia. It was in middle of nowhere Russia. And I remember just thinking, I'm like, where? I mean, there were so many people at this race. And it's a lot bigger sport in Russia. And in my mind, I'm just going, like, who on earth would come here to watch (laughs) is negative 20 degrees celsius and it wasn't a comfortable day to be racing in spandex but i remember sitting on the start line and kind of looking around me and you know all of a sudden it kind of just clicked and it was like these are all the guys that i watch on tv (laughs) and right now i'm terrified (laughs) i mean i think it was good for me because that actually ended up being one of my best world cup results so maybe that that anxiety play well
2: yeah i don't think i could handle standing next to some huge russian kind of looking at me like no nah, you don't have a shot <laughs> <laughs> you you seem to handle it pretty well
1: yeah it'd be like some you know like senior out of high school uh playing basketball like going straight into the nba and his coach telling him that he had to go up against lebron or something
2: <laughs> so You get into this and you have the different levels and then the top level is pretty much the Olympics. And that doesn't happen basically every four years, obviously. Mm -hmm. Was that always kind of your mindset or or were you always just focusing one race at a time?
1: It really became a goal after uh, my last or the last Olympics in Vancouver, Mm -hmm. uh, because the last Olympics in Vancouver, it it was the first year I was racing uh, professionally And that was kind of the time when I I started kind of getting glimpses of national success. It kind of made me think, you know, maybe I can do this in another four years. Maybe I could prepare myself enough and train enough to where I could actually – you know, at least get my name in the mix so that I can make a tough decision for the coaches. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, so then you do this World Cup circuit, you're kind of on fire, and then you take first in U.S. cross-country championships, beating out four of the athletes who are selected for the Olympics, and then the selections come and you don't get picked. So can you talk about how the selection process works?
1: Actually, your guess is probably as good as mine. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, my goal is to make the Olympics this year, and they do have some guidelines, and a lot of those guidelines uh, involve, you know, the objective criteria to qualify for the Olympics is based off of uh, international racing, but you can only uh, qualify if you are over on the World Cup skiing, and it's honestly very, very tough to get yourself over to the World Cup for whatever reason that we don't need to go into they they don't uh they don't really allow like a good exchange but i guess they don't really allow a lot of domestic skiers to go over there and and compete Mm -hmm. uh the only way you can really go over is if you get a continental cup spot which is if you're winning the national race series here in the u.s Mm -hmm. then you get you know, for there's four periods in the world cup season, then you can go over, uh, if you're winning that series, but in order to win that series, you have to be a a good sprinter and a good distance skier. So it's just, it's kind of a hard thing for, uh, you know, if you, if you're skiing well domestically, you know, say you're a really good sprinter or say, or a great distance skier, then it's hard to get that spot. And, um, unless you're like having outstanding results where you're you know, you're winning everything over here or winning everything at U.S. Nationals, then it's kind of hard to get noticed. And especially as you get older, like if you get beyond 24, then you kind of get looked over a little bit, I think. Bringing that back to the Olympic selection, you kind of do everything you can to lower your fist points and kind of show the coaches that you're skiing better than everyone else at that point. And, uh, you know, then it's kind of just up to luck and their decision.
2: Yeah, so you had mentioned that Nordic skiing is a pretty small sport. How many U.S. professional Nordic skiers are there? And then how many spots are you guys competing for to get into the Olympics?
1: Whether people are pursuing it actively or kind of, you know, working part-time and also pursuing it or just kind of doing it for fun, there's probably, for men at least, there's probably around 25 guys that can compete in the u.s and which is a pretty small field you know but when it's when you're all you know going to all the same races every weekend and um traveling around doing that it's 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 pretty competitive for the olympics there were um i want to say seven seven spots okay wow
0: do you think there should be more weight on events closer to the Olympics? And just if you compare it to other sports, you hear analysts say a lot of the times, you know, like whichever team's the hottest going into playoff season, like that's who you want to go with.
1: So uh, that, that all has to go back to like fist points. And mm-hmm. so uh, some of the like selection criteria for the Olympics this year were to have the lowest fist points in the U.S. So uh, fist points work in like a calendar year. If you say like you had a good end of the end of your last of uh, February last year into March, say you scored a couple of really good points races there, all those points carry all the way over through the selection period from this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so say you had a really bad fall this year, you still have all those points from last season kind of carrying you. You know, to have our U.S. Nationals, it wasn't officially an Olympic qualifier, but I think everyone in the U.S. thought of it as that. To me, it's just kind of a... It's kind of a weird system because, you know, you want the people that are skiing fastest at that time mm-hmm. before the Olympics. And, you know, if you're just picking a team off of fist points, it's there's no discretion really involved because you're picking people that could have been skiing well in any time during the past calendar year.
2: You're not actually part of the U.S. ski team. Do you think that that plays any role in the selection process?
1: Uh, I don't know if it has to do anything with the selection process as much as it just has to do with, I guess, your ability to gain some international exposure to that high-level racing.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, everyone on the U.S. ski team either races all the World Cup races or has some rights to some World Cup races. You know, being able to go over there without the pressure of having to race fast on the super tour, I think, is something that could be noted. It's something that definitely needs a a little, in my opinion, just a little restructuring.
0: So yeah, let's transition to what's going on with you now today because you're taking a break from skiing to pursue a more entrepreneurial path. And I'm really excited to hear about 10th Mountain Whiskey. Tell us about what you have going on.
1: Yeah, I know. Everyone kind of thinks it's funny. You got this U.S., national champion in nordic skiing this (laughs) endurance sport and all of a sudden he's getting over into uh you know some whiskey distill. (laughs) but you know to be honest i've i've always really enjoyed um you know whiskey and during my april (laughs) (laughs) to go into uh to business i'm going into business with a couple of uh a couple of my friends and actually sponsors of mine and One of them was actually one of my high school soccer coaches as well. So they're just really good buddies and really good guys to be around. And both of them have their own businesses here in Vail and kind of just want to, you know, they love what they do right now and they're so passionate about it. And just, you know, they see this opportunity for something else in the valley and they're entrepreneurs too and want to take advantage of that. And so we're really excited to start up this craft distillery and, and uh, we're actually doing all the distilling just down the valley in this town called gypsum and then we'll hopefully have a tasting room up in vale and we'll have some product out this summer and yeah it's been it's just been a really fun road to kind of to move from professional racing which is a lot differently structured day to basically a full-time job trying to build a, a small company
2: yeah when can the uh the listeners get their hands on some of this whiskey You said this summer they'll have some tasting we'll be right in downtown uh, vale village
1: yep we'll uh we'll have a tasting room right in downtown vale village and you'll ask anyone in the craft distilling or even any distilling industry alcohol industry that going through the hoops of starting up a distillery or a brewery or a liquor store or anything is <laughs> It takes a really long time, and you never really know how long it's going to take. But we're hoping now at this point, kind of when we're on the tail end of everything, early summer.
0: Yeah, I've always found it fascinating how much thought, and I've kind of gained an appreciation through doing the podcast, is how much thought goes into things and how long certain things take. So best of luck there. How has your work ethic as an athlete translated to the business?
1: (laughs) It's actually a great question, and I, I didn't really know how. There's two main ways I've I found how, and one is uh, the promotion of, of a product. And, and for the past four years, it's been me. Uh, you know, I in order to you know raise money for myself, I've had to really promote uh, myself and you know like what I can offer other people in return for assistance. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've learned a lot about uh, social media marketing, promotion, putting on fundraisers, and learning how to have a good time through those events. And so that that helps translate over into the whiskey distilling because I'm I'm in charge of a lot of the I don't know, like the promo, the merchandising, the apparel, the the social media, all that side kind of, you know, trying to get that spark in people's hearts about what we're doing
0: very cool, yeah. Another thing that we like to ask our guests is we like to hear a gear recommendation. Since you're both a, an expert in the whiskey business and in Nordic skiing, give us one of each. One uh, alcoholic beverage that you'd recommend and one piece of outdoors gear.
1: Right on. Well, during my April, if I'm doing you know some backcountry skiing or... If I'm just going out for a you know a long ski or whatever, not a long Nordic ski, but if we're going out in the woods for a while skiing, I, I really enjoy a uh, a good rye whiskey, and that's what actually we'll be making is a, a whiskey distilled from rye. Uh-huh. And then for gear in terms of like Nordic skiing, the setup I've been on for almost ten years now has been Fisher. Fisher is always and always has been a top of the line, and have just been so happy with it for my entire career. It's always reliable. It's light, and they're always kind of at the top of the market. And um, both the first skis, boots, bindings, and poles, I think that they always have been and always will be my uh, my go-to.
2: So out of the uh, the skis, boots, and bindings, what's the most crucial piece you think out of those three?
1: <laughs> I think the skis are, you know, if you're looking to have a good race I think you can manage maybe some painful boots or you know bindings are just important because they're the the joining part of the boots mm-hmm. but I think there's so many aspects to a, to the bottom of the ski whether it's uh the grind you have on the ski or the wax you're using on the ski or the flex of the ski or whether it's a cold or warm weather ski there's there's a lot that go into a good ski so I think if you can nail a good ski then um then you're you're dialed
2: yeah i totally agree sylvan and for any of our listeners out there if you want to find any of these resources the skis or also the rye whiskey check out sylvan's meister profile at our website mtnmeister.com and sylvan to kind of wrap this whole thing up we want to finish with present day and what challenges are you having either in your nordic career or this new business venture
1: honestly right now my biggest challenge in life is adjusting to this new life i'm so used to this past four years of uh you know this schedule i've had of being home during the summer these training hours during the summer and then kind of being gone during the winter and my biggest challenge so far has been adjusting to this new life it's (laughs) you always hear people say like you know stay in Nordic skiing as long as you can. And now I totally get it because it works hard and it's very competitive. And, you know, to stay on top, you really have to, to really work hard. And I think luckily for me, I've, I am an athlete and I have a really competitive nature. So it's easy for me to stay competitive um, Mm -hmm. and not want to fail, but it also comes at a price where you're waking up early in the morning and, trying to maybe crank out some stuff he didn't get done the night before and then working the whole day. And for me, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out a good schedule to make sure I'm getting in um, some good training every day. And that change from skiing to, to the work life is, has been hard, but it's definitely been doable.
2: Is there anything you've changed in your life or any resources you've used to help you with this challenge?
1: Yeah, my wife, she, uh, she's been huge for me and she's been working her butt off for basically her entire life now. And she's, uh, she'll be graduating as a physical therapy student this weekend. And she was right there through my whole transition from going into Nordic skiing and, uh, Um, the work life and luckily for me she was also a nordic athlete that went from you know a nordic skiing career into a work career and she knows how it is and she really helped me through it and you know she she pretty she got me ready you know telling me that that what you're going to be doing is going to be really hard and the transition is going to be hard and you're going to miss nordic skiing like heck and you got to just do things to to make it okay
2: yeah, I totally agree with you. It's good to have that real uh, support person right next to you. Uh, my fiance kind of <laughs> let me roll with it. But um, Ben is a big supporter, too. But my fiance has <laughs> been huge on, on this whole podcasting venture. Well, anyway, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we'll put all these different resources we've talked about on our website. Uh, like I said, mtnmeister.com. And then if you have anything else, any other questions for Sylvan, you can reach him at inthearena.sylvan.blogspot.com. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you, guys. What you're doing is really cool.
0: Thanks for listening, Meister fans, and hope you enjoyed that episode with Sylvan Ellifson.
2: Yeah, I think it's so cool what he's doing with his new entrepreneurial venture, and I wish him all the luck with that. So, Meister fans, we've been doing the must-have giveaway for two weeks now, and we still have some gear left. So check out what we got left on our website, and all you have to do is share an episode on Facebook and tag us, Mountain Meister. Join us next time when we have Ian
0: Wood on the show. Ian works hard as a farmer and fisherman to support his professional snowboarding career. Learn about some of his unique adventures next time on Mountain Meister. Talk to you then.